This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com slash incubator. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator Podcast. It is Sunday. We have an amazing interview scheduled for you today. Daphne, how are you? Uh, I'm tired. Let's <laughs> go. Other than that, uh, I'm very, very uh, excited that we finally have the opportunity, one, to have recorded this, this interview, but finally to release this interview. Extra exciting. Yeah. So for people, Daphne is post-call as we are recording the intro to That's this interview. True. She was not post-call on the day of the interview. And you'll see, she has, she, yeah, you were peppy that day. So I don't want people to say, oh my God, she's going to be like slumbering through the interview. That's <laughs> not true. Not true. Not the case. Do not tune out already. Do not case. tune out. You are not no, going to no. want to miss the rest of this episode. <laughs> Um, I, I guess we said that we had no updates. I just want to tell people I have not yet released the Delphi videos on the YouTube channel. They're coming. They're coming. I'm getting the final edits. It's just a bit slower we than I expected. We trust you. I know, but I don't like to say stuff, stuff is going to get released and then they don't get released. In any case, we have a great interview for you guys today. Mm-hmm. We have uh, two guests on the show. Uh, we have Dr. Amy Hare and Dr. Misty Good. Lucky uh, at definitely. Yeah, lucky us. They are the A-team, the neck <laughs> A-team. If you are not familiar with who they are, number one, they are both very active on Twitter. You can find Dr. Amy Hare at uh, Amy Hare MD, and then you can find uh, Dr. Misty Good on Twitter at Misty Good Lab. Um, Dr. Amy Hare is an associate professor in the section of neonatology in the Department of Pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine. She's also the program director of the Neonatal Nutrition Program and co-director of the NICU Intestinal Rehabilitation Program at Texas Children's Hospital. Uh, Dr. Misty Good is the division chief of neonatal perinatal medicine. She's also an associate professor, all that at the University of North Carolina Children's Hospital. She is the director of the Good Laboratory. They are both extremely accomplished in the field of nutrition research. I mean, it, it, it would take us the whole hour just to read their numerous publication, numerous yeah. grants, uh, and we'll talk to them a bit a bit about some of these awards and some of the things they're working on. And so um, without further ado, please join us in welcoming to the show, Dr. Misty Good and Dr. Amy Hare. Dr. Amy Hare, Dr. Misty Good, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. Thank you yeah. for having us. We're so excited to be here. Yes, thank you very much. We're, we're excited because it's it's nice to have an episode on neonatal nutrition. I have a lot of questions uh, as a as a as an amateur, not as an expert. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but I guess the first thing, um, <laughs> the, the first thing that I wanted to ask you was, uh, how did your, um, collaboration, how did the, the, the collaboration between uh, Amy Hare and Misty Good begin? What are the inception of that, uh, of that collab? I, I'll go first with that one. I, I think I forced Misty to be my friend. <laughs> no. Um, so I, I'm not sure if that'll be cut or not anyways. Um, it's too late. No, no. Honestly, um, Misty and I had overlap, uh, I think, in research regarding nutrition and necrotizing our colitis. And we have mutual friends in common, like Cammie Martin and Steve McElroy. And I believe in the Next Society meeting a long time ago, I don't know if it was 2014, um, we were able to kind of, um, you know, chat about research. And I think that's where it started. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think, um, I think I knew about Amy long ago, like when, back when I was a fellow and we used to see each other at PAS and present together. And I felt like she always had it together and, um, she gets up there and presents so beautifully. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, oh, I wish I could present like that. She's incredible. So I'm um, now dear friends and have, you know, an R01 and another grant together as well. So it's really It's a testament though. to the fact that you don't really need to collaborate with the person like next door to your office, right? I mean, I think it's it's a nice testament to that, that, uh -huh. that you can actually establish meaningful and productive collaboration with people even in other uh, areas and in, in, in the other parts of the country as well. Absolutely. We find um, when we've interviewed uh, people, collaborators, that there are different personality types that tend to pair up. So <laughs> do you guys have uh, pet peeves for one another or, uh, you know, smooth sailing all the time. I'll take that. I know we're pretty type A. Um, so we, I would say we keep each other in line and make sure that we stay on each other's to-do list, which can get pretty long. But I think that, I think that we keep each other accountable. And I wouldn't say pet peeves. Do you, would you say, Amy? Maybe, no. maybe I'm, I'm nagging Amy. Maybe that's the, the peeve. I'm nagging her for a deadline. No, I, yeah, no, I think we're both incredibly busy. And if anything, um, you know, Missy's a great support system. I remember when I was writing my R01, I mean, it's a lot of writing and I'm not, believe it or not, despite all my publications, I'm not inherently a good writer, or at least that's how I feel. It's not exactly easy for me to write. And so um, Missy's always like, just keep writing, just, just keep trying. It'll get there, you know? And um, yeah, I think that's, that's some great advice you've given me. But yeah, no, well, Missy, when she decides she wants something done, like it's going to get done, which is great because I'm more of a procrastinator. <laughs> so when she's ready, then like I really make sure that and then I can really, you know, like rev up and, and finish like some of the papers we've done, et cetera. So it's a good thing. Well, and on a, no, I was going to say on a kind of more serious note, it's obvious that, you know, you guys are collaborating together, but you individually are having all a number of projects, right? And so I think, you know, we have a lot of trainees who listen or early career neos. So for people who are starting out and, you know, they've got their whiteboard or Ben, I'm sure, has some virtual form of a, the whiteboard with the check boxes, you know, when you have a bunch of different projects going on. Like how, how are you allotting the time to different projects? How are you managing, uh, triaging the situation? I guess any tips? I about? think I do have a big whiteboard. I live and die by the whiteboard, which has, you know, one side is like all <laughs> projects and manuscripts. The other is like invited, um, 
review articles or book chapters. And then another section is grants. Another section is like mentees, deadlines, just so I can keep them all straight. And another one is um, invited talks. And so just so I can know, you know, chronologically what's upcoming without having it hit my calendar and then having a reality check on Sunday when I check that I have, you know, a couple talks in a week or something. So um, that's what I do. I would say from a project management perspective, especially as my lab has grown, I will say it's important to have um, check-ins with your team pretty frequently just so um, they stay on task and you stay engaged in their project, which I think as a mentor is really important. Um, but as a mentee, one of the things that I learned early was how to manage up and um, recognizing that mentors are really busy. And so something that I have um, my team do, um, but also I did when I was a mentee, was provide weekly updates to my mentor so they knew what I was working on for like the previous week and then what I was planning to work on for the upcoming week, which I think as a mentee helped me stay focused, even though sometimes it was a little bit of a chore, but um, I do think it kept my mentor engaged in my projects. And, you know, then I was also held accountable for moving them forward every week, which is always important on staying on top. I love that. I'm going to start sending Ben a, an update email. Weekly. I'm telling you, I'm a post-it person. I do have a whiteboard, but um, mm. I'm I'm a yellow post-it. Um, lots of post-its. So depending on how busy I am, but I I do um stay pretty organized because otherwise it's um it's a little crazy. I will be honest. I am really behind on email right now. So I've been telling a lot of people like, you just might have to text me or I, it, you know it just kind of got behind at one point and I'm never going to catch up. So that's okay. But I just want. Everyone listening to this, like we are all behind. We mentioned this recently at PAS in the lecture we are giving. Like, I think once I realize that everyone's drowning, even the most successful people, there's a lot of tasks to do. And I think it just made me feel better. Like, okay, everyone feels this way. So, you know, you just try to get as much done, you know, each day or when you have time to work as possible. Mm -hmm. Daphna, there is a whiteboard that you should know of. So, uh, <laughs> You know where it is, I right? I know you have a in, in our office. Okay. Yeah, yeah. In our office, yeah. But I know that you have That's a true. digital That's format true. for it. Um, so, real yeah. quick, since we're talking about whiteboards, one of the things that a few of us did was get a whiteboard right in front. I have a big project management whiteboard, but I have a whiteboard right in front of my like screen in case uh -huh. you're on a Zoom and somebody says something that you really have to do and you can just write down really easily. So it's the small whiteboard. That is like also the crutch that helps mm. me, you know, when you're doing so you don't forget. So you don't, so you don't forget anything. Really? That's it. So, like shall that. we talk about neonatal nutrition, Dafa? Oh, I'm not I saying I thought this not. was a very important to discuss. Yeah, but I, I want to make sure we covered all the grounds their... we needed to cover. <laughs> um, I, I wanted yeah, to start the, 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 the discussion about neonatal nutrition with the confusion that is... I'm going to jump oh, right you're in. Gonna There's jump a lot right of confusion, I think, for people okay. who have trained at different stages of the past, I don't know, 20 years. And it seems like, as we were saying with Daphna before we come on air, when we talk to parents in the NICU, we say, hey, the NICU is like two steps forward, one step back. But with neonatal nutrition, it feels like it's one step forward, one step back, and we have no clue where we're supposed to go anymore. People who trained some time ago, when I was a resident, it was you advanced feeds, 20 ml per kilo per day, and then now it's no longer a thing. And then there's probiotics, and now the AP saying maybe it's not a thing. Then there is 
uh, human milk versus uh, bovine. There's fortifiers. And I think at, no matter how much resources are poured into neonatal nutrition, no matter how many papers are published, I have a feeling that for people like me who are not experts in this field, we are reaching a point where it's like, I, have no, I no longer have any clue as to what I'm supposed to do and what's okay, what's not okay. Because if I advance by 20, somebody's going to give me the, 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 the snarky look of like, oh, you really don't need to do that. So I wanted to ask you, what are some of the certainties that we've achieved in neonatal nutrition that we know are beneficial, that we know we can rely on? And where do some of the controversies remain? No, there's a lot to keep up with. I think that's part of it, too. And, um, you know, some of the larger studies um, over the past few years have been great studies, but um, not all of them have given us results that we could take back to the bedside. So, like, for um, for instance, like with seeding advancement, you know, the SIF trial by John Dorleans group and others, it was a long list of authors. So I don't want to leave anyone out, but, you know, it showed us that we could advance by 30 per kilo per day versus like 18 per kilo per day. And the problem for, that I'm having is implementing that clinically. We're so used to doing kind of, Ben, what you said, like 20 per kilo per day or, you know, we have our set ways. And so trying um, to kind of change clinical practice is is a little tough, especially like I have a very large NICU. We have 175 beds. Wow. And so um, with many, many nurses, you know, um, other staff, you know, nurse practitioners, fellows, residents, et cetera. So I, I think one of one of my biggest struggles is how all these little changes or big changes that are occurring. How do we implement that clinically and keep it going and change what we're doing? Um, but I think the other is I, I think pretty much we've settled that obviously we need to focus on increasing the use of mom's milk. I think out of everything that you kind of listed or anything we do in needle nutrition, we do know that the more you know mother's milk a baby gets better their outcomes, et cetera. Um, and I think most people would agree that VLBW infants or less than 1,500 grams would benefit from pasteurized donor milk if mother's milk's not available. Yeah. But then where we go from there in regards to fortification and um, growth, growth is still a challenge, despite when you calculate on paper, you think you're giving the baby enough calories. Um, so I, I do think I'm hoping, um, there'll be more research coming out, but I, I will say that for the big studies that are occurring, they're not as many as there need to be. And for whatever reason, some of our big funders hadn't been funding neonatal nutrition, or even from a physiology standpoint, all the nutrition physiology studies are from the eighties on bigger babies or maybe the nineties, but any, any way you look at it. Like tiny babies, less than seven fifty or even less than a thousand, haven't been well studied. So I think uh, I think it's coming, but I feel it even as a researcher at the bedside, trying to change practice or keep up with practice and do what I think is best for babies. If that makes sense, it does. Yeah, I feel like we feel that in our unit a lot. Exactly what you said is as primary clinicians, we're trying to take the data that's been done on older babies, potentially healthier babies, and, and try to translate it. And, and some of the babies we're working with have these other risk factors, like very extreme prematurity, uh, this long exposure to uh, severe preeclampsia, and these babies are surviving in, in numbers that uh, we've never seen before. And so they may have risk factors still for, you know, catastrophic outcomes that are 
unrelated to advancing their feeds. Um, and we, you know, we're having, I think, trouble uh, managing think that narrative. Also, one of the biggest things is we don't know what is optimal. Like Amy said, we know what, we know that mm-hmm. mother's milk is optimal nutrition, but every, every mom's milk is different, right? So then what is the optimal nutrition that we can put into our babies? And can we modify that um, through the mom's diet or other other ways, you know, individualized nutrition or personalized nutrition and um, how we can do that at the bedside, um, I think is it's really an area of research that really needs to be investigated further. It's certainly in the basic science realm, not, mm-hmm. not saying we need to experiment on baby's milk, but I do think that there's a lot left to be investigated in this area. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think, what do you think should be our approach to, to the, the variety of infants that we're now seeing in the NICU, as you guys have mentioned? It's no longer that the NICUs are populated by infants that are born between 32 and 37 weeks. We see such a wide range starting at now 22 weeks all the way to late uh, prematurity. And I think there are so many categories that are represented, each with a different set of risk factors. How do you approach this diversity uh, specifically from a nutrition uh, standpoint? Yeah, I, I mean, I think Missy's right. I mean, ideally, we and I hope and I, I think we'll get there. It, it's going to take some time um, and some studies, but I do think personalized nutrition, whether it's analyzing mom's milk or figuring out, I'm not sure biomarkers is the right answer, but some way, I mean, my dream would be to somehow be able to tell which baby is going to have trouble feeding and which, you know, which not, et cetera, and mm-hmm. something to guide us. I do think um, we need to study our babies I, and not in the sense of actual babies. Look at our data. So, for instance, we are now taking care of those tiny, tiny babies. Right now, we have about three babies or 400 grams in the unit. And that baby is just so different from, you know, even a baby that's 750 grams. And so I think we also need to look at our data and figure out what is reasonable. For instance, some of our babies that are 22 weeks don't get to full feeds on average about a month of age. So if you know it takes a month of age, then, you know, it's it's okay that we step, start and stop feeds, et cetera. Um, I just think we need to know, like, at least what are we doing now or at least what are the babies doing right now? And then how do we change that? So we are collecting data from our center, but we'll need multiple centers of data to kind of fine tune that. And Dr. Cami Martin had put together the Neonatal Nutrition Collaborative that Amy and I and several other centers are working towards that effort where we're collecting data on the babies and what they're feeding and trying Mm -hmm. to get to some of that granular data that has been missing, I think, in the literature over the past several decades. And so then you you mentioned um, whether a baby, quote unquote, tolerates feeds or not. And, And I think that's a subject that also has become quite controversial. What does that mean for a baby to not tolerate feeds? I think so many people would say, well, I check the abdominal girth. Some people would say, I check residual. Some people would say, I'm looking for emesis. And it's interesting to me how we have certain tolerances when it comes to full-term infants that we would tolerate a few spit-ups here and there. But then our our compass becomes so warped when it comes to more immature infants. And, and there's we're so scared, right? We're so scared of 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 the dreaded uh, necrotizing enterocolitis that that we want to, we, it becomes very difficult to parse out the signal from the noise. And I'm just curious if it, what does that look like for you guys? 
I'm certainly not a feeding intolerance expert, but I do think that's one of the problems in our field is that we are all terribly afraid of necrotizing our colitis or neck. And what do we do about it? And so a lot of us are working in this field um, to try to figure out, is there a biomarker, you know, like for neck specifically, not necessarily feeding intolerance. But I think you're right, Ben, that, you know, we do tolerate a few spit ups here and there. Then what happens is, you know, that nurse that is very worried about the baby or very worried about the aspirates, which should we be checking or not? I think, you know, the data shows that uh, we shouldn't be checking, but in a lot of units, we still are, right? And so, including my own unit. So, and this was one of the bane of my existence, I think, when I was a resident. And one of the reasons why I actually started studying neck was because we just don't know much about this disease. And we have some success in units that are striving to get to uh, neck zero. And um, we haven't been able to make a lot of headway with that nationwide. So I do think it's a clinical conundrum at the bedside. And, you know, whether a baby progresses to have neck or not can really be devastating for not only the baby, but their family and the whole medical team. And so I think there's a lot of research that really needs to be done on this disease. But the problem is it's frustrating to study. And so um, when we think about you know, ways to modify their nutrition or ways to advance their feeds, et cetera. We do need neck as an endpoint. And that means that, you know, we need a lot of babies for those studies. Because when you go to power a clinical study for neck, it just takes a lot of different babies. So uh, like Amy mentioned, we have to study the smallest babies that are at the highest risk. Well, it's helpful, I think, to all of us that it's hard even for you to change the culture Mm -hmm. in your unit, right? Because it's so uh deeply rooted uh in in um in in so many units um but that was going to be my question why do you th- why why is neck so hard to study as compared to some of the other pathologies we I tackle think in the unit? I think it's just like we talked about it's one of those diseases that's really feared and we don't have a really good definition of neck so when we think about what is this feeding intolerance you know, what is this abdominal distension? Is it CPAP belly or is it bell stage one? Um, I think the issue is we don't know for sure. And sometimes, you know, babies are included and I've even included them in my studies where it's like, you know, maybe this baby's a 1B and they had, you know, um, their questionable neck, but not, you know, maybe we call it pupitosis, you know, on their, on their abdominal x-ray. And so is it, is it a bell stage two or not? And I think, um, I think for those of us that are studying it, um, from a research standpoint, it can be really frustrating that the medical team will call it neck and it's not, I mean, you're looking at the x-ray and you're like, it's not neck, please don't enroll them because we're collecting, um, mm-hmm. with Amy and other collaborators, reflecting, uh, all the biological fluid from these babies so we can study to see, you know, is there a particular biomarker that we can find and is it in the urine? Is it in the, blood, is it in the stool, et cetera. And so I think until we have those answers, we don't know for sure. But I will say it's hard to study because there's a lot of different, we don't know the definition, um, they're not great. And then the phenotypes are all incredibly variable. So Amy does a lot of studying on um, babies with cardiac neck and Mm -hmm. cardiac neck is completely different than preterm neck. And so I don't know if you want to talk about that, Amy. Yeah, no. Well, so some of my interests, so I don't, I love neonatal nutrition, but I also have started working. We have a large cardiac ICU that houses infants. And 
I have a great collaborator, Jeremy Roddy there, but uh, it's been very interesting to work uh, with the cardiac ICU doctors. Many of them are critical care, uh, care trained. And so um, they're not neonatologists, but the collaboration is good. We see things a little differently when it comes to nutrition. But I mean, they they actually have a lot of real neck. And I, I say this because as a neonatologist, I'm like, oh, we're just calling it stage one. Nope. They actually bloody stools, you know, things concerning for neck. And so, um, yeah, no, I agree with Misty. I think there's just different phenotypes. But for the cardiac ICU here, one of the things um, I'm most proud of that one of my fellows, Jasmine Kataria Hale, did, she basically implemented a study using um, em emphasizing mom's milk and girl care colostrum. And we basically were able to get rid of formula in the cardiac ICU in the sense of if we didn't have mom's milk, we started using pasteurized donor milk there. And to us, that was, you know, kind of changing the focus on human milk. So I know I keep going back to human milk is the answer, but really, I mean, mother's milk right now is the one of the only treatments or strategies, you know, there's bundles, right, to prevent neck, but mother's milk is really um, obviously best. And just e even at our large institution where we have a huge lactation service, we still have our challenges and are still troubleshooting. How are we not supporting moms or what what could we do differently to, to help our families? I want to come back to mother's milk, um, but I, I have a different kind of question. Certainly, I feel as a clinician, you know, that that threat when you haven't figured out which way this baby's going to go yet. And I think one of the things we do know in terms of long-term risk factor for neck is that antibiotics are certainly a problem, but the way we cover ourselves for, yep. for neck is antibiotics. So do you think that we will get to a place where, you know, maybe we're still figuring out how to diagnose it, but that we'll have a better way of ruling out babies with neck so we can stop antibiotics, even though we've started that's them? That's a great question. I think that's certainly what we all want to strive for is, does this baby have neck or not? So we can continue feeds or we can continue on. That's that's really the only way that we're going to be able to personalize these and tailor really our management. But like like you mentioned, Daphne, I will say that every day that a baby's on antibiotics wipes out their microbiome and oh, yeah. increases their risk for neck. And so how can we then modify that in this era of fear in the NICU for this devastating disease? I I don't know. There has to be another way, like either with, you know, targeted intestinal epithelial therapies or things like that that we're working on in the lab. Um, but I do think that we need to get to a place that we're able to know, does this baby have neck or not? Rule it in or out and then be able to move forward. Yeah. And just to add with the microbiome, I completely agree, Misty, but um, you know, I, I'm starting to study postnatal growth failure in the microbiome and it actually matters what microbes are there because the metabolites that they, they make, you know, can contribute to digestion and absorption. And so, um, obviously neck is like, we want to treat neck. Um, but secondarily, you know, there are other impacts, um, that we all know of, using long-term antibiotics. So yeah, if we could find somewhere in the middle or at least a subset of babies that we could maybe lessen their antibiotic course, I think that would be really great. So if the, if the answer is mother's own milk, then <laughs> what are our obligations to, to support people who are 
pumping and, and, you know, the procurement of humans. I would just say that what I've learned, you know, I've been here at Texas Children's for about 14 years now. And um, for us, or at least my, what I've learned along the way, it's, it's kind of, it's a team effort and it's a cultural change in the sense, and we still struggle with this. So by no means are, are we perfect, Daphna, at all. But, you know, we're always trying to be better. But what, what I've really noticed is when you have the, if it's discussed in rounds, you know, how's mom doing? How's the pumping going? You know, um, if the nurse mentions it, we actually have um, milk bank technicians. We have a centralized milk bank and they will go and deliver milk. We have individual refrigerators in the rooms for moms to put their milk in. We have lactation consultants. Um, we're currently doing a free pump rental system. So trying to just, from all avenues, try to encourage the discussion and culture of how can we help mom. Um, but, you know, for us, for example, we have major barriers. A lot of our families live two hours away, so they can't come every day. And so um, we haven't done this yet, but try to get creative about could we ship mom's milk to us like FedEx wise or, um, you know, I just think more more needs to be studied. But for, from my standpoint, it, it's everyone pitching in, trying to talk to mom about how pumping going how's their milk supply, and then trying to troubleshoot from there. I agree with Amy. I think I think it also just takes a holistic approach. So not just us in the NICU with all of the resources that we all have in terms of, you know, pumps and lactation consultants and private rooms and, um, you know, just real support for them and encouragement. I think, I think it also happens on the MFM side, you know, and so... Oh, um, prenatally, if a baby's, you know, threatened preterm birth, really talking about what that milk means to that baby. And it's really like medicine to them. And I think the more that we do of that and we can encourage it, you know, prenatally and then certainly immediately after delivery, as soon as they're able, I think that's another good approach as well. I will say one thing, I just as a thought, since you mentioned our collaboration with our obstetric colleagues. One thing we recently changed in our unit is the the minute, you know, a delivery happens um, is that we're having our obstetric colleagues go ahead and, and write those uh, orders and requests for pumps before moms ever leave uh, the unit. Uh, because we found once they were gone that, I mean, it was taking us weeks and weeks and weeks. And by that time, the milk supply had diminished, um, even in moms who were really dedicated to to pumping. So that was a small change that we've made in, in our unit that has made it and a big difference. That's great. This episode is also proudly sponsored by Reckitt Mead Johnson. Reckitt Mead Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive NFML portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. Learn more at hcp.meadjohnson.com. I wanted to talk up since we're talking about human milk, I wanted to bring up the, the subject of fortification. I think this is something that has been the standard of care, but I mean, from from speaking to people at PAS and 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 I think outside of of yet formal PubMed publications and and peer reviewed publication, there is a discussion I think that is ongoing about should we be fortifying breast milk for preterm infants? Would they be doing maybe better with just straight up breast milk? And I am wondering what are your thoughts on that and 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 what are your thoughts in general about fortification? Because I do know that there's multiple avenues to explore when it comes to fortifying uh, preterm breast milk. 
I think it's always important for us to question what we're doing, meaning we've been fortifying for years in the NICU. And I think then it, it is important, you know, do we need to fortify? And so I think it depends which preterm babies you're talking about. So I know, so a couple of things, um, the population, uh, the volume of feeds that you can give the baby and kind of what their calculated needs are. So I know some of our European colleagues uh, do not fortify or they, they rarely fortify. And, but they also report that they're giving 220 mLs per kilo per day of fluid. And I, no matter what I did in my unit, we would never be able to do that. And in fact, it's hard for me to get our physicians, our team to go above 140 mLs per kilo per day. And so even if they're giving 220 of fluids, you're still not giving enough protein, calcium, and phos. But I do understand the concept of well, but you're giving all mom's milk and that's protective. So I do think the dose of mom's milk and how much you're getting is important. But when you're calculating the numbers and some of our review articles, we put this in there because it, if you don't think about it, you don't realize that, oh, you know, so if you're, for instance, a baby's bloat restricted, or even if they're on 160 mLs per kilo per day, they do have additional needs. So like definitely less than a thousand grams, they would need extra protein, calcium, and phos. If you have a 1250 to 1500 gram and you can give high volume fluids, you might be able to convince me not to fortify, but probably not. Because mm -hmm. I just feel like we're already not giving enough as it is, even with current fortifiers. So I think, um, it, you know, especially for the tiny babies. And then if they do fortify a lot of units that, you know, kind of give this higher volume of feeds and they attempt to not fortify, they fortify late. And I'm not sure, you know, the critical needs are in the first, you know, month of life. I mean, they continue, right? But the minute a baby's born, they have significant protein loss as long as, you know, as well as losses of everything else. So I think that we should be thoughtful and, um, and you know, emphasize the mother's milk dose. But I personally don't think that in small babies, you can get away without fortifying. Mm -hmm. I do think we have to also think about the postnatal growth failure that occurs in these babies. So not only just the micro and macro nutrients that they're not necessarily receiving from um, an exclusive human milk diet, but I think, as Amy mentioned, I think we have to be thoughtful in our approach and, you know, careful in what we're giving the babies. So, you know, a lot of people talk about fortifications, but you know, if a baby's not growing, for example, instead of, you know, adding more calories, maybe they'll add sodium chloride because maybe their chloride's a little bit lower. Um, so I think taking a holistic approach to everything that we do in the NICU, I think it's really important because, you know, that um, sodium chloride or, you know, just their electrolytes are a little bit off and giving them an oral medication does modify their intestinal microenvironment. And so we talk about that when I'm rounding a lot. And uh, my team knows that I obsess about those things, but there is a critical developmental window that occurs in, in these babies. And so from 28 to like 33-ish weeks, you know, those babies are at really high risk for neck in that time point. And so being really thoughtful in their approach, I think is important. And just how we move forward from there, I think is yet to be determined. But I think there's a lot of focus on how do we grow our babies safely and um, how can we really optimize their outcomes long term. That's something we've been talking a lot about in our unit. Um, when we looked at like the amount of medications that our tiny babies were getting, in addition to the yeah. fortifier, which, you know, was standard in our unit, in our protocols, 
but um, we had a, you know, the multivitamin, we have iron, we have an epigen protocol that's accompanied with uh, other additional uh, folic acid, vitamin E. Um, if the baby was on diuretics and the baby then needed the sodium chloride to cause because they were on the diuretic, um, you know, what role do those, I, I mean, you started to mention it, but play on, you know, just what the intestines can tolerate. I think the intestines can tolerate a lot. I think one of the, one of the issues is this really hasn't been that well studied. It's been studied in, um, you know, like just in terms of osmolality of different medications, et cetera. But how does that really affect a 22-week infant intestine? We don't have good studies for that clinically. One of the things that we're doing in the lab that we're funded to do is taking pieces of intestine once they're resected for neck or other indications, and then having what is considered a personalized medicine approach to testing different, different drugs that we use in the NICU all the time on what we call gut on a chip approach. So a microfluidic chip where we can uh, grow up an infant's intestines from their stem cells, make this um, intestinal monolayer, for example, and then attack it with different, with different drugs and see how um, the, what is the direct effect of that particular medication on a preterm infant intestine, for example. And so that's one of the ways. It's not obviously the best way um, because you don't have you know, the intestine's not um, in vivo, but I will say it's an ex vivo approach that we're trying to use to get at these questions. So more to come on that. Yeah, I was going to say, Missy, that, you know, your research is fascinating. Um, that's why we're friends. You teach me so much. But honestly, Missy and I talked about this. I'm like, I don't even understand how we're able to feed preemies, especially these 22 and 23 weekers, because if you um, look at the physiology of the gut. If you listen to Misty give a talk about the immaturity of the gut, the microbiome is not there initially. Um, yeah, I'm like, I don't even know how we feed these babies, it, it, but yet we do. So like Misty said, the, the intestine can uh, adapt and take a lot. But um, yeah, when, when you really think about it, it kind of freaks me out. Like I'm not sure how we're feeding them, but they're feeding. Okay, great. I think it shows how resilient babies are and how, you know, the various things that we do to them, uh, somehow they end up, you know, doing well for the most part. So I think just, you know, remembering that a some of what we do is, you know, stand back and let them, and let them, you know, lead the yeah. way. When we, when we study for board review and you review the the development of, of the gut and, and, and neonatal, neonatal digestion, you're like, how are they digesting all the stuff we give? Right. So early on. They're, yeah, they're right. just not supposed to be doing it. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, parental counseling. I think I think there's there's a lot of um, exotic practices that sometimes parents bring to the forefront about how they want their babies to be fed. And and it could get quite challenging to provide uh, counseling and, and perform some some adequate shared decision making with families when as a field we are so clueless about about nutrition and about neck and about all the diseases because parents will, 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 I've had parents tell me, well, you guys don't know very much about this anyway. So what, how come what I'm suggesting is not uh, a valid option? And so I think, I think in, in, um, I think in nutrition is such a, a primal thing that, that parents like it's, it's one of the core 
tenets of, of being a parent. We, we feed our children. And so I think it's such a touchy subject. And I'm wondering what are your experiences and maybe some tips and tricks on, on how to navigate the, the, the counseling, those counseling sessions. Ben, that's an excellent question, and it can be a challenge. And honestly, I occasionally, I'm the medical director of our milk bank, so I occasionally get called when families are, um, you know, just very, uh, they have their own ideas about nutrition, and they would not per- like to use pasteurized stone or milk. So um, I'm called in sometimes for those cases as well. Um, you know, honestly, from a, I guess I'll just bring up donor milk as an example. So we generally mention it in the prenatal consult. We mention it at delivery and we want parents to understand why we're doing it. But at least for our less than 1500 gram babies, you know, we say that this is our, this is our approach. This is our protocol. We think this is best practice. Um, and I, I will tell you that I think that this is interesting because I, I've seen a huge change, but back in 2009, when we introduced donor milk, we had a written consent form. And um, that's just how it was. And across the board, I'd say majority of parents are like, donor milk, ew, gross. Those exact words, I'm not making it up. And no matter what their background was, mm-hmm. their beliefs or their education. And, you know, these days parents are asking it. I don't even have to mention it. They're like, can my baby have donor milk? And so, and now we've moved to like a verbal assent. So, I mean, we have made some progress. I think some of it's education as well. For instance, you know, donor milk is more mainstream now, but I really, I think Misty said this about a holistic approach, but I really think, you know, we need to validate our families and acknowledge, yeah, you know, I understand where you're coming from, but this is what we think is best. I will say I've had some families that um, when it comes time to switch off both, either off bovine or human milk fortifier Mm -hmm. to to formula, because they don't, you know, mom doesn't have a lot of milk, unfortunately. That, that's a struggle too, because uh, there's lots of opinions about formula or some families want goat's milk or they want, you know, I don't want to give my baby all those ingredients that are in formula. And I'm like, you know, maltodextrin, that's fair, you know, but um, this is where we're at. So I think um, educating them, supporting them, and then try, you know, sometimes I'll negotiate. If it's a negotiate, you know, if we can negotiate like, okay, this might be okay for this baby and this is going to make this family feel like they're part of the care team. I'll do that. But, you know, when it comes to little babies, it, it, we can't do that. Mm-hmm. That's we'll, my point of view. We'll put your email in the episode show notes for it. Yeah. For the consults. For the consult. Yeah, right. I will just echo Amy's approach. I do think, you know, hearing the families out and hearing what are their concerns and where they're coming from, I think it's really important in getting you know, moving through all the emotions surrounding feeding and what it is that they're worried about. So there's a lot going on right now in the mainstream media about how we're feeding premature babies. And I think that it's important for them to be well-informed, but obviously also, you know, letting them know, like, this is a lot of the literature that's surrounding, you know, your particular age baby. And um, because I think a lot of what people are hearing um, may be really scary to them. And so just figuring out they're coming from a place of fear or mm-hmm. coming from a place of family tradition, for example, um, what what is it that um, is driving the conversation? And then I think, you know, just hearing them out, as Amy said, and um, and coming to a consensus about how to feed that baby, I think is important because if you're just pushing the practice on them, um, whatever it may be that they don't agree with, 
then they may not be comfortable in other aspects of the NICU. And it is a long road, as we know. And so I think, I think, you know, mm-hmm. making them a partner in those decisions is, is going to be really important for mm-hmm. um, the whole medical team. So continuing on that note, um, I think there's something interesting um, for us as providers where we do have some experience bias, where if we do have a baby that develops next, we're a, bit, a little bit um, uh, squeamish with feeds for a few days after that. But, some, but there's other babies that do very well and we get back into the rhythm of things. But when it comes to families, um, how do we, in the cases of babies who do go through episodes of neck and, and, and thankfully come out on the other end, um, and how do we counsel these families and how do we prevent a situation in which a family will be terrified of anything GI happening to their baby because they had this traumatic experience of whether it is a next stage two or even a surgical case of neck where every feed is 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 analyzed where every stool is dissected and and so how do we how do we prevent that from happening and try to allow families to go back to normalcy if they if they ever can you got messy i was just gonna say i don't know i mean from i don't know if a family will ever get back to normalcy after after neck i mean we do a lot of work amy and i and others with the neck society and so um you know, it's really a wonderful resource for families. Um, if you haven't, uh, if you haven't recommended it to your families with neck, I highly recommend it um, because they do have um, parental support and a lot of um, a lot of like flyers and different information that is really family friendly and um, can really help them through a lot of those feelings and you know um, worries that they may have. I do think it's scary for all of us, right? It's scary for them. It's scary for the providers. And um, we just want what's best for the baby. We want them to have a good outcome. So until the science catches up with all of those, you know, feelings and how we can advocate for these babies at the bedside, whatever it, whatever that may be, um, I do think that we all need to work together on it. I would say that, you know, for babies that have had neck, you know, really, um, pushing mom's milk as much as possible, you know, if, um, they've been saving it or if they're stressed, um, just really supporting them to continue pumping. And if not, then donor milk when mom's milk is unavailable, uh, post neck, I think it's, um, incredibly important. The issue really is that, like we mentioned before, we don't know the best way to feed babies and we certainly don't know the best way to feed babies post neck. Um, but, you know, slow and steady post-neck usually is all that we can do. I wanted to shift gears a little bit mm-hmm. and more into kind of this uh, global nutrition. So um, what do you think, like we know a lot about how, not in the NICU so much, but how important early nutrition is for the development of chronic disease, adult disease, um, uh normal neurodevelopment or quote unquote typical neurodevelopment. So, you know, we're still collecting that data, but what do you think we will find, you know, in two, three, four decades um, about kind of these, the, the long-term nutritional outcomes from these, these babies who have spent such, you know, these medically complex babies who've spent so much time in the NICU. Yeah, no, I I was thinking two things because when when you talked about global, it be I, I have two answers. So thinking globally, um, 
what popped into my head was that, you know, malnutrition, granted, we, we are feeding our babies and giving nutrition the NICU, but to some degree, they are malnourished. And as a nutrition person to say mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. it's a little crazy. But, you know, um, if, they're, if they're not fully growing, we're not giving them something. But um, I don't mean to keep going back to the microbiome, but with my collaborators and working with Misty and my recent um, grant I received there, it's pretty profound. It really depends on what gut microbes you have in relationship to mm-hmm. malnutrition, protein absorption, et cetera. So I feel like one, we're going to make, I really do feel like we're going to learn more in the next couple, well, 20 years. Hopefully before I retire, we will, we'll, <laughs> which is a long way away, but still, um, but that one thing that that made me think of, but yeah, no, we we don't know. And I, I will be honest, you know, our early, the early days and um, the NICU, meaning like 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when um, our BPD, you know, chronic lung disease babies, they they weren't, um, there wasn't emphasis in growing them in leap. There is, you know, just let them gain weight. And we found that there were a lot of health problems later on related to, you know, they had too much catch-up growth. Um, early childhood, you know, adult diseases like obesity, et cetera. And so then we put this emphasis on making sure they grow in length. And so, you know, I I agree. I mean, we need long-term studies. The problem is I've done some follow-up studies. I love seeing these babies back, but trying to get funding for it is, is very difficult. And so it's like something that's really needed and we need to study it, but, um, but, but we need to be creative about how to go about that. I agree. And I would just add, it's not only just the microbiome, right? It's what we're feeding. So we're talking about feeding our babies, but we're also feeding the microbiome that is there. And so what are, how are we doing that? And is that, you know, is that probiotics? Is that prebiotics or a combination of both? Um, I think all of that needs to be um, a lot of, there's been a lot of studies about probiotics, but, um, but certainly there's other ways, right? So a lot of units are not adopting the probiotic um, bandwagon. And so then how do you move forward from that? And, you know, what is the best way to build that, what we call healthy microbiome for these babies? And so in order for them to grow, as as Amy mentioned, I think a lot of that, there's so much that we could all be doing. And if only there was unlimited funding for us all to, all to do it. But I think, uh, <laughs> I do think we need to think about that because those microbes, you know, produce metabolites and those metabolites and how they interact with, um, you know, the, like the host immune response to inflammation, et cetera. I think a lot of that plays a huge role. You're both are very humble. I mean, we, we, um, but we it would be silly for us not to mention that you are both been awarded grants to study these exact issues, whether it is postnatal growth, as, as Amy mentioned, and, and Misty, uh, really talking about this sort of intestinal atlas do you want do you want to tell us a little bit about about your your recent awards and and what you're hoping uh to achieve specifically with with these grants go ahead amy she just got an amazing new award oh no well i had a lot of support it's a it's a team effort i think encouragement at the end of the day no i i would say cammy martin held my hand as well as misty good so it you know anyways you got me through it but yeah i was just um I'm very thankful to be awarded an R01 clinical grant for five years. Basically, as you mentioned, to look at postnatal growth failure, it's specifically looking at the interaction between the liver 
gut microbiome. And specifically, we're looking at fat absorption and bile acids. So, you know, we think about bile acid maybe when we give ursodiol to some of our cholestatic babies, but they actually um, have signaling pathways in the intestine and in the body related to fat absorption. And so what I'm hoping to find is, you know, what's different about babies that don't grow? And is there, you know, my dream would be, is there a certain mix of bile acids that we need to give? Or as Missy mentioned, a certain microbe um, that makes this certain metabolite, you know, maybe it's just one and we're not doing it to prevent neck, we're giving it to promote growth. So I, I really think it'll give us some physiology as well. Um, the last time, bile acids haven't been studied in preemies. There was like one study maybe. Um, and so it's a really understudied area. So I'm excited. That's great. We are um, just doing a whole bunch of things. So um, just briefly, I will say that we, um, one of the grants that we have is to study how we can modify the intestinal immune response in neck and how we can, obviously, the goal would be to prevent neck um, completely. And so we're looking at some immunotherapies, specifically interleukin-22, which has both anti and pro-inflammatory um, properties. And so we're working with the FDA on trying to get that into um, a clinical trial for um, treatment for neck first, and then hopefully prevention after that. Um, we have another grant that is looking at um, biomarkers for necrotizing enterocolitis um, at both the stool level, but also um, using blood as a biomarker, um, looking specifically at DNA methylation as a potential um, biomarker for that or what we had talked about, you know, ruling in or out neck, I think would be, you know, really important. And um, I mentioned briefly, we have, um, we have funding to um, take human infant intestine once it's resected and then do like a neonatal gut on a chip approach and test, um, test different therapies um, and see how the premature gut handles different therapeutics, um, both the you know, in the healthy and the disease state as well. And then we were really fortunate to get a Chan Zuckerberg grant um, in collaboration with Amy and then Cami Martin and um, Troy Markle at Indiana and Scott Magnus at UNC here, um, one of my collaborators. And we're building a neonatal um, intestine list and, you know, in the context of several diseases, but including neck. And so seeing at these just different gestational ages, you know, what is happening at the cellular level and the molecular level and all the different link signaling pathways, um, again, during all different diseases. And so I think together, you know, we have, um, we have this neck biorepository that we're really grateful for. And we have up to 10 centers now that are collecting intestine and, you know, all different all different samples as well. So certainly one of largest, I think, neonatal biobanks in the country. And so hopefully with all of us dedicated to that, we will get uh, some answers for all of us in the future. It's in your voice, you can hear all the work that went into <laughs> getting those awards, but mm -hmm. also at the, the realization that the work only begins. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's yeah. Right. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, for our, um, you know, colleagues that are really focusing on clinical care, you know, I am working on some other things. I think Missy is too, that um, are 
my goal is to try to get uh, as much bench to the bedside quickly as possible so that we can, you know, take it. It, um, Yeah. So I'm also working on a few things to try to answer some of these questions for neonates, um, especially some of our 22, 23 weekers, mm-hmm. or at least where are we? Or the babies we have, you know, just so we can mm-hmm. start somewhere and then study. And I think the Neonatal Nutrition Collaborative will be great for that as well, answering the, some of those questions. Well, we're looking forward to all of that work. <laughs> looking forward to reviewing those uh, the papers that come from all of that hard work. Um, my last question is is related, though. Um, you know, for people who are interested in neonatal nutrition or in NEC um, research, what are some tips and tricks to to you know get get close to you experts? Um, but also. I mean, obviously, you guys are layering, you know, the work that you're doing uh, along your careers. But are there things that um, in regards to neonatal nutrition are still like uh, totally like unstudied uh, potential gold mines? Oh, wow. I mean, that that's a that, yeah, great question. No, I mean, I think any honestly, any topic related to neonatal nutrition that someone can publish like their data from their center, even though it's single center, will just get us closer, um, you know, to answering some of these questions. I, you know, I'm trying to think what hasn't um, been studied. Now Now that I'm on the spot, I can't, you know, I have a whole list. I think we all have like a running list of like sure. next ideas or projects. But um, I mean, even TPN, TPN hasn't been well studied. I mean, there was a recent study looking at protein um, and that was very nice. But even um, follow up, there's very limited follow up of our babies. Um, and I know, you know, there's some groups looking at that, but even just looking at your cohort and um, looking at nutrition from that follow up is a huge one. Late preterm infants, no one pays attention to them. I mean, you know, because we have these tiny babies and so they they are a separate population and they are still immature. And I don't want to say no one pays attention. And just in general, the literature is not focused on that subset. But that is a huge, um, you know, what do you do with that 34, 36 week or, or even 30 to 34 weeks? So that's a huge population mm-hmm. as well. As well, I would say the most important thing that people can do that, you know, that are thinking about entering either nutrition or um, studying neck in those fields is be curious, right? And what bothers you at the bedside? Um, think about studying it. I think that's one of the most important things that we can do is be curious, ask questions. There's so many questions in neonatology in general that haven't been answered, but specifically, as we mentioned, related to nutrition and neck throughout this uh, podcast, I would say be curious and lean into that and know that you can answer that question. You know, I think one of the things to remember is that like those of us that do research, you know, people from the outside are like, oh, it seems like hard. It seems like you have two jobs. But really, we're trying to like save all the babies in any way that we can with our work. And so you could also do that. And so lean into that. We're happy to help. I think yeah. one of the things is when people are at their centers, they don't know who to reach out to, or maybe there's no um, researchers that are in that field, but we're always happy to help. The Next Society actually just started um, this mentor-mentee program for early career investigators at any stage, whether it's trainee or faculty level. 
that are interested in studying neck, but maybe don't know how to do it. And so matching them with um, a neck investigator with their interests, whether it's clinical or basic science or translational, and how to get that started at their center. I think that's um, that's really one of those fantastic opportunities. But also just going to PAS or other, you know, AAP or other meetings, I think, and meeting us and talking, talking about, you know, what it is that you want to do and help, we can help inspire the next generation. So they should be nice. Yes, we are not very nice, right? We yes. we love I can to talk. I can confirm. It is a friendly bunch. The nutrition bunch is a friendly but bunch. We right? want to help. Yeah, because that's how we got to where we're at. People helped us, so, you know. So let me um, ask you that question. And since you're bringing it up, I'm wondering what led you, and I have one more question after that, but what led you to your interest in neonatal nutrition? Was there, was this a patient? Was this just curiosity about the physiology? But I'm just, um, and at what point in your career, because I think we tend to dismiss our training years, but I think our career begins much earlier than we tend to think. At what point in your career did you say, that's something that I want to, I want to focus my, my career on? You want me, you want me to go first? My, my, I feel like my story is, is a little interesting. Um, I don't think many people would believe that I wanted to be a general pediatrician and I fell in love with the NICU. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do three extra years of fellowship training. Um, I did a project related to NAC in residency, a clinical project, because I had a patient that really impacted me, um, and she got very ill from NAC, and I was like, we've got to study this. So I came here to Baylor, and um, Steve Abrams was running the nutrition program at the time. I was actually, I teased Misty, because I was going to do a basic science project, going to look at DEX and um, liver receptors. Well, my mentor for that left. So then Steve Abrams said, you're going to come work with me. And I was like, you? Oh, okay. And, you know, I've always had a little bit. I, I actually, you know what? I wanted to learn how to write TPN as a resident. So I guess I did have some nutrition tendencies, mm -hmm. right? Um, but then it just kind of evolved from there. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but it just kind of. And then, you know, um, my mentor left early in, early in my career. So I didn't have a K award. Um, and I just got this R01. And, and so there's all different pathways. I would say anyone listening, you can do research. We'll, we'll, we'll help you. Any, any question you have to answer, but you don't have to follow the path. I mean, I, if you have the passion and the drive, I, I would just say you don't have to. I mean, yes, the path might have been a little easier had I followed the, the way it's supposed to go. But, um, but yeah, no. So here I am and I did it a little differently and I'm loving what I do. It's a hard act to follow. <laughs> so I would say, um, I mentioned earlier that uh, I became interested in NEC as a resident only because of these aspirates. And um, really, you know, as an intern, it was like the nurses would come bring you the aspirates and do you want to feed or not feed? And it was really puzzling to me that I felt like in that moment, I had such power to decide and there was no good literature to support it. So it's like, are you going to feed that partially digested Maybe is there a green tinge? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Ask for it back. Or are you going to pitch it and restart? And I remember thinking, gosh, we could really do a lot more for this disease. But I didn't know anything. I wasn't at a research center. I didn't know anything really about neck other than we were all afraid of it. And so when I became the fellow at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, I decided that I was going to, you know, for my fellow only project, I was going to study neck. 
Um, and I went into David Hackham's lab, who's, you know, neck expert, surgeon scientist, and just really fell in love with discovery and like, how can we change this field for babies? And so how can we feed them better? How can we nutritionally modify the gut environment? How can we model neck in the lab, which is such a crazy thing that we didn't today, but, um, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, ways in which we can do that in different animal models. Um, including mice and piglets. Like I never thought that I would ever take care of, you know, a piglet in my life. Um, but, but you know, the things that we do along the way. And I will say, as Amy mentioned, there are struggles that happen, like mentors do leave. And so I was fortunate enough to get my key award. And then my mentor in my lab did leave and, um, for a better opportunity. And I couldn't leave at the time. Um, but I will say that you do th- in those times of, you know, crisis or career. Um, change. You do need to sit back and think, you know, what are you going to do and are you going to pivot? And, you know, surrounding yourself with an amazing mentorship team, I think is really important. And my mentorship team did pick me up, you know, at that time in my career when my mentor left and um, it was Dr. Jay Coles and he's just fantastic. So I basically did a second postdoc in mucosal immunology of the gut and, um, and really became fascinated with how we can modulate that, uh, you know, either nutritionally or chemically. And so I think when you're thinking about what to study, just go with, as Amy mentioned, what you're passionate about. And um, one of my mentors once told me, you know, just keep doing research till you don't get funded or you don't like anymore, or all the questions have been answered. And so, uh, so that's been honestly how I've come across my whole career. And I've been really fortunate to have amazing institutional support, mentorship, and funding throughout the way. So grateful for that. My my last question for you both is related to nutrition culture inside the NICU. And I feel like um, they sometimes feel like they're chips, you know, that we can, there's only so many that we can redeem. And and the paradigm has changed so often, both because we're taking care of different babies in the NICU uh, than mm-hmm. we were 20 years ago, and because we're learning more. And so we're we're changing our practices. But I feel like nutrition is something that is not the propriety of physicians alone. It is something that we deeply share with our nurses. Uh-huh. And I mean, I've had nurses tell me, honey, I've been here for 20 years and I've seen you guys switch it back uh-huh. and forth. And I know when to feed a kid and I know when not to feed a kid. So I, well, what's interesting is that when I get these comments, I don't feel offended. I just, I love them, right? I mean, this is, this is NICU, this is prime NICU. And I think they have a place in the culture of a unit. Now I'm wondering how do we take it all in and we keep our unit marching forward in the right direction without also maybe letting this attitude um, be too contagious so that there's inertia. I I was just going to say that I, I feel like I need a degree or specialty in implementation science or sustained cultural change. And I, and I say that because I, um, we have such a large staff and we do have turnover. We're a big children's hospital. And so, um, I do feel like we kind of get everyone on the same page through education and working together. And then we have a new set. We have new faculty. We're actually expanding. So we have a lot of new faculty as well. And so that's great because they bring other ideas and experience that we can, you know, include in our, um, nutrition practices. But I do feel like, and that, that's why I say, it's like, how do you sustain change or sustain this culture? Um, 
And I don't have the exact answer. I'm sorry. I wish I did. But other than just to keep trying. I, oh, and I have left out that on this podcast are amazing neonatal dietitians. I mean, they're the ones at the bedside really helping the teams. And so I think for us, it's just every member of the team, including our dietitians, bringing in our nurses, just trying to do the best we can for nutrition. But um, as for sustaining it and then not letting practice creep go back to where we were, um, I have not found a great way other than just to keep trying. And then when we notice that, oh, you know, we did this oral care with colostrum, um, you know, project and we were doing great and then we weren't. And so, you know, having to go back and figure out, okay, what do we need to do differently or do we just need more education? So it, it's a big challenge, Ben. I would say something that's, I think, worked over the years is making sure that when you have like protocol or guideline development, that you have all the stakeholders there. So if you have somebody that is mm-hmm. passionate one way or another, I do think inviting them to be a part of the, the process is going to be um, fruitful in that regard. And then making sure that the people that you have on those, you know, guideline committees or um, protocol development team that, you know, they can then bring that back. So whether it's, um, you know, whether it's, you know, you're, you go and present to, um, like a, a nursing meeting or a charge nurse meeting or, you know, a dietitian meeting, I think, um, I think you're making sure that everyone, like the whole team that's involved feels invested. And especially if they care deeply and they're challenging you at the bedside, I think that may just be a signal that maybe they need to be involved and like can help the process or if there's new data making sure that it's shared um widely with the team and when we do have a lot of turnover in every NICU nationwide i think you know ongoing education is very important not of that i just want to highlight what you just said about how challenge at the at the bedside is really just evidence that they you know people care deeply about their patients um You've given us lots yeah. of tidbits this this uh, this uh, last hour and change. But, but I also think it's not really a ch- it's not really being challenged at the bedside. I think I always welcome this idea that this is an ongoing discussion and and it would be. But not everybody. I does. know, but I think it's important to remind ourselves. And I think this discussion was so great because we we have very few certainties in life, and especially in neonatology. And so I think having these questions being asked until we have we reach a level of certainty is is the healthy is a healthy uh, process yeah and being humble 100%. about them yeah 100%. um we are um over time and at the end of our of our but uh it, it was it was a great conversation um dr amy here dr misty good thank you so much for making the time to speak with us today um, we will have links uh, to all the resources you've mentioned, and we'll we'll put ways to get in touch with you for people who are interested in neonatal nutrition and who would like to explore potential ways to uh, to help you on your journey to uh, eradicate neck and improve um, the nutritional outcomes of our preterm babies. Um, Daphna, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank Bye, you, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. 
You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICU Podcast or through our website at www.the-incubator.org. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care professional. Thank you.